we're continuing uh, the, I call it the Pastor Dan series, I don't know what you want to call it, um, but the, the sermon series that uh, we're doing here while on the Sundays when I'm present um, is a series that is based actually on things that Jesus' enemies said that were frequently and ironically quite true in form, right? Usually the attitude behind this um, was off, right? There were selfish or wicked or evil motivations, but um, in, in form, we, we look at those words and we say, I, how ironic is that? Because there really is a lot of truth to that. And today we're looking at another one as we look at this phrase, Hail King of the Jews. Um, to start out, though, I want to I tell you a story about a young woman um, that I knew a, you know, a long time ago, back in college. Um, we'll call her Andrea for our purposes this morning. Um, and, and Andrea was, was the kind of person who grew up her whole life going to church and going to Sunday school. She was even going to a college where she was training to be a Lutheran teacher. But then one day, uh, Andrea was asked to leave the school under some sort of, I, I don't know if you call them questionable or debatable circumstances, um, but she was asked to leave. And when this happened, it kind of uh, plunged her faith into crisis. You know, she was very happy to call Jesus her king when things were going according to plan for her. But then when things started to go south, she, she started to ask questions like, well, why would Jesus, if he's really king of all things, let this happen to me? And if, if he is king of kings and lord of lords, then then is he really worth my praise and, and my devotion if he is going to allow that sort of trouble in my life? You know, I actually ran into her totally by chance a, a few years ago when I was visiting family in Milwaukee. And as I spoke with her, it became obvious to me that her faith was now a thing of the past. And there are certain elements of that story that are a lot like what played out in Jerusalem during Jesus pre during the final days of Jesus pre-crucifixion life. Right? He had been heralded into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the king of the people, right? As they shouted things like Hosanna, hail to David's even greater son, our Messiah, our savior. And five days later, that same Jesus stood in front of those people with a shiner on his eye, their spit trickled down his face, patches of his hair and beard ripped out, and those people who had shouted Hosanna just a few days earlier were now shouting to their Roman governor, pleading for his crucifixion. The relationship of the people with their king had deteriorated so quickly and come to this. And feeling the pressure of those Jewish leaders, Pontius Pilate caved in to their bloodthirsty demands. And that's where we're picking up the story today in Mark chapter 15. Because even these people um, who despised Jesus, who hated him more than anything, 
They ironically say something remarkably true about him. And today we're going to hear from the whole company of the Roman soldiers, actually. And as we listen to what they say to Jesus, we recognize that there is truth for us to gain from our life, as well as a lesson that we can learn about our relationship with our king. So this morning we're going to start out, I know we already read these, we'll kind of just look through them again, verse by verse. Look through these verses from Mark chapter 15. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium. So this was really more of a fortress than like one of those nice regal palaces you might think about during the Passover, this um, very large Jewish celebration. So many people came from all over um, the, the population of Jerusalem increased. I've heard, I don't know if this is a, an accurate statistic or not, but I've heard that the population increased by something like a million people during uh, the time of the Passover. So um, when you have this national Jewish holiday, um, the Roman governor would actually come from his normal location in Caesarea down into Jerusalem to make sure that there weren't any problems caused, there weren't any rebellions against Roman rule. Okay, so this was much more like a fortress than anything. Um, So anyway, they lead Jesus into the praetorium and call together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, and this probably would have been like an old cavalryman's, part of an old cavalryman's uniform, Um, but since it also serves uh, as a color for royalty, they also made made use of it for their insidious purposes. So they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him, right? So if The purple robe wasn't clear enough. The thorny crown certainly does the trick. They are dressing Jesus up as a sort of fool king, right? And now they give him a fool's homage. Missed something there. Oh, okay, I'll just read them to you. You can follow along. I think we missed a a slide. Um, And they began to call out to him. So the soldiers, hail king of the Jews. And that's our buzz phrase for today. We'll come back to it shortly. Again and again, verse 19, again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. Now, everything those soldiers did was intended to be cruel mockery. Even as they cried out, Hail, King of the Jews! Do you think there was a single one among them who truly believed that Jesus was any sort of king? No, it was a total farce to them, right? Like when my high school and college friends would call me slugger during our pickup softball games, I was anything but, right? They were kind of making fun of me. And here we have the same thing going on, right? The soldiers are looking at Jesus and they think, how could somebody so weak possibly be a king like what kind of delusions is this guy living under how could someone who winces and bleeds and cries out in pain much less be the lord of heaven how could somebody so pathetic and unimpressive be anything but some insane loser from galilee Those were the kinds of questions that Satan was putting into the hearts and minds of those Roman soldiers some 2,000 years ago. But today, he whispers remarkably similar ones to us. Okay, so if you're writing things down in your sermon notes, uh, here's what we might call our our main point for today. Oh, okay, you know what, I'm not going to use those. 
<clears throat> I don't think that all of them made it in. So um, the, main, the, the first main point that we have for today, though, is this, that, that Satan likes to tell us that Jesus is king of nothing. That Jesus isn't king of anything at all, right? If Jesus really were the king, why would he let such bad things happen to such good people? Why would he let little kids suffer from chronic illnesses or die of cancer? Why would he allow so many civilian casualties in this Russia-Ukraine conflict? Or, or maybe, maybe he likes to take you in a slightly different path. He says, if Jesus really is my king and my ultimate authority, then it means that I am not subject only to myself and that I then have to change certain things about my lifestyle or my personality to match what he says his people should be, right? No more partying, no more grudges, no more cheating the IRS out of a couple extra bucks come tax time, right? Satan wants us to look at Jesus and see him exactly as those Roman soldiers did, as weak and pathetic as somebody who doesn't have the authority to tell me how I'm supposed to live my life. He certainly doesn't want us to see him as our Savior from all guilt of sin, past, present, and future. Who's Jesus? Satan asks. Jesus is king of nothing and nobody. But before we do what the Roman soldiers did and what Satan would love us to do, I think it's important for us to change scenes for a moment, to look at those verses from Revelation 19 that we looked at earlier. And you can, pull, you can look at those in your, your service folder if you want. I'm just going to highlight a couple of key verses here. Verse 12, His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Verse 13, He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen. Coming out of his mouth, verse 15, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now isn't that more of the king that we want? Right? This one who is powerful and fearsome, who leads the armies of heaven itself into battle. Can you believe that this king of Revelation then is the exact same one who was mocked and humiliated by those Roman soldiers as king of the Jews? Right? The apostle John, is, who knew Jesus well, who was there at his crucifixion, who now sees this scene from Revelation, is recording this, as I mentioned earlier in the service. Only now, as he sees Jesus, he has traded his black eyes for eyes that are blazing with fire. He's no longer covered in his own blood. He is wearing a robe that is dipped in the blood of his enemies. He isn't wearing a crown of thorns he is wearing the crowns of all of the kings that he has conquered. So yes, Satan might try to tell us that Jesus is king of nothing, but your next big point for today is this. 
Scripture reminds us again and again that Jesus is king of everything. And he isn't like a king of this world either, whose rule is limited by the boundaries of the, the, the kings of neighboring kingdoms or even by um, the, the allowance of his own people. No, his power and his authority over everything is absolute, allowing him to do exactly as he pleases. When those Roman soldiers called him king of the Jews, their mocking uh, words were actually correct, only they didn't go quite far enough. Jesus isn't only the king of the Jews. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. The king of everyone and everything. But it does beg the question, why does one with all power and all majesty and all authority sit and let himself be pummeled and humiliated by these Roman soldiers? Right? Um, no champion boxer would let himself lose in like a bar fight to some punk, right? If I picked a fight with Floyd Mayweather Jr. or Conor McGregor, they're not the ones who would be lying out cold at the end of that altercation. I'm pretty sure that would be me. But Jesus has to do it. us because we're the subjects who mutinied against him we've all turned away at times from our king's rule and, and his authority thinking that we can do life our way better than his way right? we've hardened ourselves against his lordship we've let ourselves grow angry and embittered at times against his rule, worst perhaps, is that we have given our loyalty and our hearts over to, to people and passions and projects over and above him. Right? We've loved what our king provides for us more than the king himself. To put it frankly, we're rebellious people. And rebels deserve justice. And this king of kings is a just king. And a just king cannot let evil and wickedness go unpunished. But this king is also good. In fact, our king is so full of love for us that he receives the blows of justice in our place that we rightly deserve. He's like a judge who sentences his own brother to death for his murderous crimes. But then after sentencing him to death, rolls up his own sleeve and offers up his own arm to receive the lethal injection because he loves his brother and wants life for him that badly. So if Jesus, the King of Kings, would have put an end to his own suffering on that day, it would have meant eternal suffering for us. If he would have not subjected himself to all of those injustices that were rained down upon him, it would have spelled God's justice onto our heads. 
The king became the rebel, the criminal, the outlaw, so that you and I could be welcomed again into his kingdom, so that you and I could be made citizens of his father's house. Now, for most of you, that's a beautiful truth that you've probably known for a long time, known and appreciated for a long time. But it may not exactly be like earth-shattering, groundbreaking news for you this morning, right? Because you know all about how Jesus came down from heaven and lived and died for us. You know all about how he rose again on Easter morning to defeat even a foe as formidable at death. You even know all about how he now is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of his Father, ruling all things. You know all that. So what's the problem? Like If we know what Jesus did for us all those years ago in Jerusalem, and if we know even what he is up to right now, why are we still so fearful all the time? Why do we worry about our futures? What, why are we still embittered about things that happened to us a year ago or even a week ago? Right? If Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and if we know that he is our King and our Lord, why is there such a disconnect with our hearts at times? If that's you, and I think it is all of us at certain points of our lives, maybe even at many points of our lives, if that's you, then I would submit that it, it probably means you have forgotten something about what life is like in his kingdom. And so in the last part of this message, I, I just want to look at a few passages so that we can remember what Jesus' rule means for us. Okay? And um, so you're, you're just going to have to listen up here. Um, I was hoping that these verses would be there, uh, but I, I think something got lost in translation between my sending them to Pastor Tim and all that. So um, I, I want to first focus, and if you've got a Bible along with you, pull it up. If you've got a Bible gateway app or something, uh, we're going to look at Romans 8, verse 37, okay? Um, so this section of the New Testament, written by the Christian hater-turned-Christian missionary Paul, uh, is sometimes referred to as the most comforting chapter of the Bible. Oh, it is there. Okay, so the most comforting chapter of the Bible. Um, and here in these words, in, in like the, the climax of this chapter, we read, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. But can I ask, do, do you always feel that way? Do you always feel like the winner that God says you are when you've had another horrible day with your horrible boss? Do you feel like a conqueror when the doctor tells you that your illness is not getting any better? Do you feel very victorious when that sin that's been haunting you since youth takes you down yet again? Or do you feel a little more the opposite, conquered instead of conqueror. You know when, when we feel that way? It's a lie. Because the reality is that you already have victory through your King Jesus. And so, yeah, your horrible, your horrible day might be unpleasant, but it can't destroy you. 
The sin might hurt, but it cannot damn you because you are already a super conqueror. Your king and your champion Jesus, he has already waged the war on your behalf and won. And because you are on his side, it means that you have victory too. And so, the next main point today is this, that that under Jesus' rule, we have victory. And we're actually going to look at three things. I call them the three V's. Under Jesus' rule, we have victory. You are more than conquerors through him who loves you. Now I want to look at Revelation 7, verses 15 to 17. Where again, this is John. It's another one of those snippets that he sees uh, from his heavenly visions. And here we read, Therefore they are before the throne of God day and, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, one of my good friends, Aaron, when he's telling me something confidential, he'll always use the phrase, this is vault, okay? What does he mean by that saying, this is vault? He's telling me to keep the matter to myself, right? Essentially, he's saying, I am telling you something confidential. Guard it. Don't let it out. Well, here's the second of those three V's. Under Jesus' rule, we have vault. We have eternal safety and eternal security because we are in Jesus Christ. And that means that everything bad and sad uh, that you experience right now can never rob you away from Jesus. And in fact, the time is coming down the road at some point when those things will never be able to touch you again because Jesus is your king now and forever. It means that soon sadness and heartache and pain and unfulfilled desires will all be something of the past. God has you safely locked away in his vault because you are in Christ Jesus. You are eternally secure. And now here's our our last passage, also written this time in a letter uh, from Jesus' disciple John. He says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So under Jesus' rule, we have the last of the three V's. Uh, We have victory, vault, and a voice. We have a voice. You know, we like to say in America in our democratic system, that everybody has a voice. Like, do you really feel, though, that your voice and your opinions really matter that much in American politics? Do you think that Joe Biden or even your Colorado representatives really care what you personally have to say about even one issue? Maybe when a lot of people are saying the same thing. But if it's just you, not really, right? But with Jesus, your voice does matter. Under his rule, it's something incredible. You you have a direct line of communication with the God of the universe. I mean, I think of it a little bit like like NASA's fabled red telephone, right? 
that there's this telephone in mission control, and when somebody picks up that telephone, the rumor is that it rings right through to the White House. They have a direct line of communication with the President of the United States of America. Well, that's what you have with God now. And because you have that with God, it's like times a billion better. When you close your eyes and talk to your father, he's listening. And he cares about what you're saying. He wants to know your wants. He wants to know your dreams, your hopes, your fears. Even more than that, not only does he listen, but he also says that he is going to act on what you bring to him in prayer. You are actually invited into the activity of the Almighty. And he promises that he is going to answer those prayers according to what he knows is best for the children that he loves. And you know what? There are a hundred other blessings. There are a hundred other things that we could talk about today. Blessings that God pours out from his heavenly storehouses into your lives. But how do they all become ours? It goes back there to Jerusalem because Jesus came riding into town knowing full well that he was going to be mocked and humiliated and die there. The king riding to his coffin so that all Adam's daughters and sons might be returned to his kingdom. That's a real king. And that is the only king worth having to rule over your heart in your life. Amen.